Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 107 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray, and what matters on this episode is, among other things, the first public gathering of the Claytonites, a new golf cult invented by Golf Channel's Brandel Chambly last week in a desperate attempt to deflect attention away from his less-than-convincing position that hitting distances are not a problem. At the elite level of the game, in a textbook case of playing the man and not the ball, Chambly decided that instead of continuing to argue his case that it somehow caused architects to blame for professional golfers hitting the ball further, he'd instead switch gears and invent a bogeyman group to deride. And it was no doubt a great honour for our co-host Mike Clayton that it was he who was chosen as the target. A classic move by Chambly that we recognised and applauded by politicians the world over, though like all such questionable political moves, it does little, if anything, to advance what many intelligent people believe to be an important discussion for and about the game. So to help celebrate Mike Clayton's newfound status, we dedicate episode 107 to those of you who self-identify as Claytonites, and we welcome you to a discussion that we hope will be broader, more interesting, and more thought-provoking than anything Brandles had to say in recent times. Enough of the pontificating. Our our special guest today is author Daniel Wexler, whose new book, A Timeless Game, so impressed our dear leader that Clayton himself called for a recording of the podcast to discuss it. And as Brandall well knows, what Mike Clayton wants, Mike Clayton gets. Daniel will be along in just a moment, but first, my co-host from LA, it's commentator, critic, blogger, author, podcaster, and all-round agitator, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, good to have you along. Did you you check in with the Chambly-Clayton bout last week? I did not. I was blissfully unaware that this was going on, and I walked by Brandel about fifteen times while he was working on the on the set at the Zozo. I would just yell out, "The ball goes too far," and <laughs> different things. And I did thank him for coming back to the bifurcation side. Always been that way. Always been for that. So <laughs> nice to have him for another few weeks on the bifurcation <laughs> side before he it's he goes yet. back to uh, whatever. I guess the the latest box of. Mm, shiny Pro V1s didn't uh, turn up in the mail or something. I don't know why uh, <laughs> he he wavers on that topic. But I'm I'm thrilled that it's the Clayton Nieces because yeah, the architecture niece does or the woke, <laughs> he had a woke architecture thing he was trying to 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 pin on us and that didn't work because a lot of people really like architecture. It turns out so it's um, it's nice to know he's made it more personal and about Clayton's. Well, it was uh, it was a very it was very interesting to see him actually engage. We might we may or may not come to discussing that a little bit later. Fresh out of lockdown in Victoria, where he discovered the joys of beach golf. He told us last week. It's the man of the moment, Mike Clayton. Clayton's looking forward to a good chat with Daniel today, and congratulations on making headlines once again through the great social toxic cesspool that is Twitter. <laughs> it is, yeah. Well, I thought he should call us Nicholasites, but I guess that was a bit of a too big a target to take on. So. He chose on little old me instead, which was pretty piss weak, I thought. Anyway, um, there you go. Well, we can only go – we can still only go 25 k's from home, so. So where does that I, get you to? Can you get to Metro? You can't. No, I can't. No, so I'm, I'm sentenced to playing golf at St. Andrew's oh. Beach, which is oh, not, everyone's not the worst. Not the worst. <laughs> everyone's I've just been blowing a hurricane the last three days. So. How does that stop the virus? Just curious. I don't. I don't. I. I don't mean that. Get off on. Uh, you know, on a uh, well, sidetrack conversation already. But I, I, I have not heard that one. Well, it stops the movement, which is the idea. Ah. The, the idea was to stop the flood of people coming down into the Mornington Peninsula. Ah, okay. Got it's it. summer, of course, and it's the holiday spot, and they do. What does the population yeah. triple down there? Clates would over some, wouldn't it? That part. Yeah, I, I guess. Yeah, I assume it's. It's the Australian equivalent of the Hamptons, a little bit. It's obviously, a smaller scale, but. You know, an hour and a half out of the city, and where people go to holiday, and yeah, yeah. 
because you know families Great can stay for the nice week. Beaches That's right. Anyway. You can get back to Melbourne if you absolutely have to in an hour, as you say. So, uh, so all good. well, good to good to hear out of lockdown, Clates, and looking forward to having a discussion today. Finally, to our guest, the other man at the moment, he's the author of several golf books. The most recent called A Timeless Game, self-published, available on Amazon. According to its own jacket, the book's a collection of ten essays touching on various facets of the game, ranging from the life and times of Willie Anderson to the impact of equipment technology. And I know which of those two topics is going to get a run today. Daniel Wexler joins us on the line from California as well for what I'm convinced will be a fascinating discussion. Daniel, welcome. Lovely to chat, my friend. And for those who won't realise until you speak, you're on a landline because you don't have a cell phone. I am thinking this is fantastic, my friend. Well, I'm trying to be a living, breathing historian. You know, I'm trying to kind of put myself back there in that time. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Good to have you along, my friend. Good to have you along. Uh, you've written lots of books. Why this latest one, A Timeless Game? You know, it, it goes back, George Plimpton was a, a writer here in America, only did a little bit on golf, but he once said something that I loved. He, he said that, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said that the literary value of a sport tends to be inversely proportional to the size of its ball, and that golf offered more, you know, wider range of things to write about. And I just had a lot of stuff put together from different things I'd looked into over the years, and a couple things I had never done but wanted to. And I just thought, all right, let's throw them under one cover if I'm publishing it myself. You know, no, no publisher can shoot it down. So here we are. Do whatever you want. Have you just have you just uncovered one of the great mysteries in life, which is the the old saying and a variation of which I think of what you just said was George Plimpton: "The smaller the ball, the better the writing." Is that a an abbreviated version of what he said? It sounds like it. Yeah. Now I'm wondering if if we're, uh, maybe what he said wasn't so original after all. But yes, that that's exactly what it is. Yeah. Perhaps he was the uh, he was the original. Now before we come to the book, I'm going to get Clates to do most of the heavy lifting because he's the only one who's had the. Uh, the pleasure of reading it, having been in lockdown, he had little else to do, so he's been doing some reading. But I wanted to say to you, Daniel, a personal and belated thank you for something you wrote on Golf Club Atlas way back. I think you wrote it in 2009, maybe updated in 2011, your hole-by-hole guide to the changes at Augusta National over the years, which oh, is an yeah. extensive piece. It is a must-read for anyone who's got any interest in the Masters. I go back and read it every year, and I reckon I've recommended it to dozens of others. As a great, uh, I appreciate that. That was a Rand Morissette production. That was all his idea, and I just kind of worked out the details. Fantastic! It is absolutely fantastic stuff. For anybody who thinks they're not interested in architecture, go and have a read. There's so much wrapped up, and I'm going to put a link in the show notes to it because, as I said, I like to reread it every year before the tournament. With the tournament coming up, uh, I will be doing so again and making it available for others to do so too. Clay, you started all this. You sent. Uh, me and another guy a text message saying that you got this book and it's fantastic and we have to get him on State of the Game. Where did you come by it, first of all, Clates? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I, I have no idea where I first saw that Daniel had done a book, but I, it, it, it's only been out. You know, I think I got it in the first week or so that it was out, so um, I doubt I saw it on Twitter. Maybe I saw it on Golf Club Atlas. Uh-huh. Or I, I don't know. I'm I have no clue where I came across it, but which of course is a problem of self-publishing a book. Is how do you how do you get it to absolutely. a wider how do you yeah, get absolutely. it to a wider audience? Yeah, well, it's, it's books. Books generally, Jeff, you've done a couple of books. It might be the hardest game in town, mightn't it? Making any money out of books. Are we trying to make Daniel depressed right out of the gate for this show? <laughs> He's well aware. Well, no, you don't. You'd have to work on that. I'm, I'm well familiar with that. He's no, well aware. No, no work me to that. Yeah, right. every author is. Not his first dance. Uh, not his first trip to the dance. So let's get right into it, Clates. I think the, there's a bunch of stuff, obviously, in the book that grab you, but the bits that you started sending me some wonderfully eloquent stuff about equipment, technology. Daniel admits to being 
prone to the shiny new stuff occasionally himself. There's some really good stuff in there, isn't there, Clades? None of it's new themes, but it's newly um, – it's packaged nicely what Daniel's done. Yeah, 10, I thought, great essays. The ones that – well, they're all, they're all good, but um, the phenomenon of Korean women – was always a there's always an interesting topic as to why they've become so dominant in golf. Um, the chapter on Joe Lewis and the black players, and the Caucasian only clause in California that kind of finally stamped out the racist nature of the PGA Tour, which was a, uh, a important moment in American golf. Probably, mm-hmm. in fact, what, is that one of the more important things that happened in American golf? over the journey of the book, Daniel, from Willie Anderson all the way through to modern equipment? Well, it, it definitely, uh, at the time, I don't know that it was seen as a huge thing, you know, coast to coast in golf, but I think that the way the country has evolved, it would have been a much bigger and uglier thing if it happened four years ago, you know. So sort of getting it out of the way, if you want to use that terminology, back in the 60s was probably a really good thing. Um, but, you know, you look at the tour, it's not like it's flooded with minorities, so I don't think it's had a gigantic effect from the top all the way down, but it's, it's certainly made the tour a much more palatable thing for sponsors and marketing and all that good stuff. Which is their raison d'etre, of course, their reason for being. Just, yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. Was that something we all assumed that would come with Tiger Woods? Was that, would be yes, a I think so. Increase in the number of minorities on the tour and playing golf. And uh, has that happened at all? I mean, clearly it hasn't happened on the tour, but. Has it happened around the country? Are the, are the more black kids playing golf because of Tiger? Or is it still a game would, that's closed off to everyone? Well, I Not think everyone. it's a game that's closed off to a lot of people just based on the time involved. Even if you don't look at the money aspect, I mean, who, who has six hours free, you know, routinely to travel and play and travel back and whatnot? But I think the first tee probably has as much to do with minority growth of the game as anything else. That's, that seems to have a real impact. Shaq, it was one of the great hopes of Tiger Woods, wasn't it? Tiger Mania 1, a very big part of the mainstream appeal of that was this golf being one of the last bastions of this notion of kind of white sport. And it really was a great hope, wasn't it, that that the game would open its arms to all these inner city kids. There are logistical problems that don't allow that to happen. But have we made headway? Is is Clates onto something there? I think we will now um, because the first tee has has moved, at least in the United States we will, because the first tee has moved from being an um, uh, old, old white guy life values uh, play, whatever that was all about, to now more of a just go play golf and you'll learn the game. <laughs> you'll learn the values um, <clears throat> learning the game. And so um, it, it, I never really cared for it because of that, because it was some sort of weird uh, approach to uh, pushing a, a certain way of life on people when we know that the game, just playing the game, going to pay for a green fee, going to hit a first tee shot, going to the range, getting paired with people, all those things would teach all the the values. And so now that they're, they're more a grow-the-game organization, I think you'll start to see uh, things change on that in the next few years. Plus, I yeah, you know, people laugh, but the drive, chip, and putt mm-hmm. is another way that that's that's gotten people in just the way you'd hope that it it it's not as difficult way uh, a way to get into the sport. But we still have a long way to go. Oh. And, uh, it's going to take a while. One senses humanity might never overcome all of this stuff with prejudice. And you know, we talk about women or racial minorities or 
you know, uh, sexuality, questions of gender. I don't think humanity's ever going to get to a point where everybody's kind of cool with all of that, Jeff. So that might be uh, too high a goal, but uh, it shouldn't stop us from aiming for it. What happened? What changed, Jeff? But it, it strikes me, and it's been more and more lately I've been thinking this, we spend a lot of time talking about internal golf discussions about distance and course architecture and the effects of all these sorts of things. And all of that is only of interest to somebody who doesn't just play golf but is sort of immersed in the game. Golf's got a bigger role to play in society. And I think Daniel's probably touched on some of this in his book in the Joe Lewis chapter that Clayton referenced earlier, Shaq. There's, there's bigger – golf's part of something bigger, isn't it? I wonder whether golf's starting to realise that now. We're starting to see it here in Sydney. We've got more pressure now to cut one of our biggest and busiest city golf courses to nine holes. People from outside of golf think it could be better used as a park. Is golf coming to grips with that stuff, Jeff, or is it different in America to what we see here? Hmm. I I don't know because right now it's such a strange time that in a matter of six months we've gone from places that were struggling to places that are thriving in, in, in at least in our golf, public golf, or mid-level clubs that were very worried about the future. So I, I really don't know what to say at this point because it's been completely flipped the the narrative um and i think those issues are going to continue to be there for courses in big cities that look like they are either wastes of real estate or resources to people but again suddenly those places have become um way more appreciated and value valuable there were a couple in dayton ohio that were closed right at the beginning of the pandemic and now you have to wonder at a place like that where the, the remaining courses are just packed. There was an article. I didn't post it on my site, but I read it. And, you, you, you know, that, that decision now doesn't look so so hot. Um, but you and I are, are probably, I think, in the minority of thinking that golf should be doing things like uh, having a course close one day a week to, to be a, uh, a, a park like they, they do at St. Andrews. And, and just to, to make the place, even if it's a public course, seem less. Uh, closed off from the public and to rest the course, as uh, old Tom would have would have preached. So, but I honestly, Rob uh, Rod, I don't I don't know what to tell you. It's just such a weird time that um, obviously the signs are incredibly encouraging that things are changing and there is a newfound appreciation for what the sport. Uh, Offers. Yeah. So that's kind of exciting. Hard to get a handle on this stuff while it's happening. Daniel, have you got any thoughts on that? You're a, you're clearly a thoughtful sort of a bloke, and you mentioned the Joe Lewis chapter. Obviously, you, you see golf you're, you're too kind. as part um, of that. Well, Jeff, Jeff said something a minute ago that I actually that resonated with me about just the value of how you're, you're paired with people on a public golf course. Uh-huh. Because the end of that Joe Lewis piece, that's exactly what I talked about. And I came from one world, and playing public courses around New York City, I was often paired my friend and I were often paired with people from an entirely different world. And you realize really quickly that, that golf was an incredible common denominator. And by the time you were done, you were looking at these people as not being from a different world. You were sharing the exact same space for the exact same reason. And it really was an eye-opening thing. And, and when Jeff said that, the light kind of went on. Cause I'm like, yeah, that was the most valuable aspect for me, playing public golf when I was a kid. And I think, you know, the courses that we're talking about here around cities are largely municipal courses. Just being out there, just being exposed to that, the mixed clientele and everything about the game, everybody comes to the game from a different perspective. You learn so much of both of those things. I think they interrelate. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really valuable commodity. And hopefully this this upswing right now will kind of, uh, marketing-wise, people might be able to tie it into that a little bit. How, how do we sell golf 
to non-golf and even anti-golfers down here. That, that second group's obviously much more difficult, <laughs> set in their ways, and they're sort of anti the game. But how do we sell the benefits of the game? Because from the outside, if you're not a golfer, it does look like a very resource-hungry uh, and large space dedicated to a small number of people. That would be a narrow view of it, but it's an easy one to come to if you don't play golf, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. I remember when I was 14 years old, looking. I grew up right outside New York City, and there were golf courses everywhere. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of pressure on real estate. But I remember thinking, how do you justify, you know, 130 people using all this acreage today? It just seems odd. Now, the flip side was people didn't want them to turn into 2,000 new homes. You know, people liked the, the lower population density, so they would get tax breaks and it survives that way. But in terms of getting people to want to play. I mean, I think it's, it's old, familiar territory, but maybe we don't market it very well. I mean, you have exercise, you have something that you can play really not maybe till you die, but pretty late in life, a lot more than you can play most other games. And the social aspect of it is clear, and obviously this, this virus is probably not going away anytime real soon, so you can market around that. And in, for municipal courses, it, it can be not all that expensive. Now, if you're talking about the country club game, obviously it's a little different. But even that is somewhat overrated, at least in this country, because... Clubs in a place like L.A. or New York are extremely expensive. Clubs in a lot of other smaller markets are much more affordable and really can actually be less expensive than upscale public courses if you're playing all the time. So there's just a lot of messaging that could be done. And maybe the first tee helps because it beats down that notion of, you know, it's a, it's a rich white man's game because it obviously doesn't have to be that. But it is a game that requires a lot of time, and that does limit the clientele, you know, clearly. If we can get people hooked on the game, the time commitment is less of a problem though, because people make time for golf, don't they, Clates? That's it's one of the things about golfers is it's one of the last things they'll give up, even in an economic crisis. There'll be discussions around dinner tables and families all around the place saying, "Well, you know, I can't really give up the golf membership. It's uh, yeah. give up a whole bunch of other stuff, but I can't give that up." So if we can get people into the game, the game will certainly survive. And we've spoken a lot about this, Clates. What to do? You wrote a fantastic piece for Golf Australia magazine the other week about learning to share the space. I feel like it's golf that needs to come to that realization. Would you agree with that? We as golfers yeah. don't realize that yet. Well, the, the the fight about Moore Park, which Jeff and Daniel's the one of the busiest courses in the country and not far from the middle of Sydney. And the is she the Lord Mayor? She's the Lord Mayor, Lord. yeah. Yeah. She's the So Lord she's Mayor. decided we'll just take nine holes of that and turn it into a park, which is how long has it been there? A hundred years, the golf course? Yeah, oh, it's been there a long time. And as you say, it, it, it's iconic. It's five minutes from the Sydney CBD. Of course, on the upside, the council don't own the land, so she has no power to do it. They can campaign all they like to ch- turn it into a park, but it's actually the New South Wales state government that owns the land and controls it via a trust. Feel like, okay, right. So, so it's, not, it's not a done deal, but they will bring a lot of pressure to bear. This this argument about Moore Park will be very, very important for golf, urban golf, going forward. Now, Clovermore clearly is anti-golf. I don't know why she is, but she's actually anti-golf. She speaks about it very disparagingly, runs all those old lines about all this space for the few, not the many. We should open it up, et cetera, et cetera. And she will run a very effective campaign to have that shut down. So golf needs to get on its bike, Clates, and start coming up with the case for the game. Well, Golf Australia needs to get on its yes. bike, which is, which is our USGA. They need to – I see they did an, interview, an exclusive interview with Golf Digest yesterday, which was – Seems odd to me. They should have done it with Rod Murray's magazine as well, given that there are two magazines in Australia, not one. But, um, yeah, it needs to defend its patch. Because, of course, the danger of it disappearing for all of us us who love the game. Well, this is what happens, Jeff. I don't know. Do you see these pressures for municipal golf 
in America, in the US, in cities around America. We're really seeing this in Sydney and Melbourne in particular at the moment. Brisbane, they just announced one day, the the state government in Brisbane, that they were closing the inner city golf course up there at Victoria Park. I don't think there was any consultation. That's it. They just shut it and they're going to turn it into a park. Are these things happening in the US, Jeff? And how do we deal with that? It could be the biggest thing, biggest problem confronting the game. We're all distracted by distance, but the loss of golf from urban centres might be the biggest threat to the game we've seen for a very long time. Oh, it's been an ongoing problem, um, and it's one that uh, when cities don't run places well, they blame uh, the game uh, versus the way they've run the course. And the cities that have turned their courses over to better people operating them have uh, kept them going and have been more likely to be successful. So I think that it is uh, always just going to be part of the part of the sports issue, and because of the the space it takes up and uh, cities expanding, it's always going to be something that that's pointed to. But again, things have changed, and mm. suddenly a place that provides outdoor recreation that's affordable um, is very valuable, and it's the least of the concerns of of a lot of politicians in a lot of cities now. If the place is not a uh, losing a lot of money, and a lot of them make good money and and fund other courses or fund. Parks. parks and recreation mm-hmm. departments so it's it's uh usually more of an image issue and it's why a lot of us over time have always wanted the usga um, to be involved in restoring some courses or providing free consultation um to on the green section side and just a lot of different things like that that would give that would show these cities that there's a sport and uh, and bodies that care and they've always just uh, stayed away from that. Obviously, when your executive committee is all private club members, these, these, you just <laughs> they just don't care about these things, yeah. um, and and that's why they haven't done it. It would make them so much more beloved and appreciated as an organization that they were. And look, it's a it's a big task. There are a lot of courses that have needed somebody to to to, to be that third party that 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 provides the data that says why this place is valuable or provides the input of why it could be better. Um, it, it would be a big thing, but it would really, it, it would, it would make them less loath than they are now because they would be showing that they actually care about truly protecting the game, growing the game, what's for the good of the game, all the things they used to be about. Um, but yeah, that, that just, the, the group as they are now, it's just, it's just board, corporate board types and country club types and, and that kind of stuff. They, they would, uh, never do. Well, the USG, which, sorry. which rug ties us into the fourth chapter in the book, which is the loss of, well, the most tragic loss to the game ever was the Lido course in New York, which Daniel writes about. So perhaps, Daniel, talk talk to us about the Lido and what happened there. Yeah, I, you know, I everybody knows about it and I had heard of it and I – and it says this in the book, I first became really aware of it years and years ago when I was researching something else, and the late Dave Marr, we were talking about courses, and that name came up, and he said that Claude Harmon, the longtime pro at Wingfoot and a Masters champion, had told him that it was, quote, the greatest golf course ever. Now, that obviously gets your attention, and so a lot of us have researched it over the years, and, and all I really did here, there's not a lot of groundbreaking stuff here, a couple little side stories that are interesting, but I just kind of took the whole story that's been put out there in different places 
tied it all together, and also got an old aerial photo in, in the book, which I don't believe anybody else had published up to now. So it kind of at least gives a more visual sense of it. But it, it, was, it would be difficult today for it to maintain that kind of status because it was stretched at 6,600 yards, and the tees were... I mean, there would be litigation all the time because it, the holes were really tightly dovetailed. But it was a fantastic golf course, and it was in a unique spot. Uh, ultimately, the, the U.S. Navy took over the site during the war, and it had been in financial straits prior to that anyway. And it just basically never came back. Trent Jones was hired to build a municipal course that carries the name, but it's a little disingenuous because they put, I think, 1917 on their logo, which is absurd because it's a totally different golf course about uh, 100 yards away from the old site. So it's not there anymore, but uh, it, it was a fantastic golf course. Just I don't know what it would be today. I think the notion that it would be one of the elite today probably doesn't hold because there just wasn't any room to make any changes to it. Oh, boy. Don't don't tell Mike <laughs> Kaiser that. That's <laughs> That's been his quest to recreate it. It's, well, he's not the only one, is he, Jeff? It, well, it's, oh, no, Gil, Gil did a version in Thailand, and they're going to try to do it in yeah. at Sand Valley now as a private club. It's been quite the obsession. Yeah. Well, if you did it now, you'd have to have, obviously, like, if it's a low-volume private club where the litigation possibilities go down considerably, <laughs> obviously that would help. But, I mean, there were places where it wouldn't take much of a miss to be right over top of somebody else pretty frequently out there. Mm. I mean, the the ultimate problem for the Lido, was it not, Daniel, was it was just such an ambitious project, golf aside. Wasn't it the biggest hotel in the world that they built there at the time? 400 rooms or something crazy? You know, I had not specifically heard that, but it's definitely possible. It was an enormous building. And you kind of wonder, I mean, they were struggling. I guess the thought was that it was supposed to be an international membership kind of thing, and if they went ahead and built the building, it would draw people. So I guess, but it ended up, I think, just being throwing good money after bad because the place was never really in good shape financially. And part of it was because it was right by the ocean, so they they elevated it a bit. But every time you know high tide would get a little higher, the eighth hole would get hammered, and it, it was always a dicey proposition. Today it would probably work better with the technology, but it was just an incredibly ambitious thing. When you look at the numbers. In terms of the earth moved and the, and the fill and everything, I mean, it's just mind-boggling what they accomplished. It really is just an amazing story, irrespective of how the course turned out. And was it not done by hand, if I'm not mistaken, wheelbarrows and manual labor? Well, to a large degree. I mean, they, they used some mechanical. They, they built like a eventually they built like a mini railroad to help move earth around. And but yeah, I mean, it was hand-sprigged. They say. I mean, that's what all the magazines said of the period. They literally planted it blade by blade and. Yeah, I mean, it was labor-intensive, probably beyond anything that any golf course has ever seen, I, I would have to assume. Uh, are there lessons for the game to be learnt from the Lido, Daniel? Amazing golf product, ultimately a failure, and disappeared from the landscape. Do we look at those things often enough in golf before we boldly barrel into the next one? Probably less of that in this day and age, but certainly the 80s and 90s would suggest we didn't learn much, wouldn't it? Absolutely, but I think... You know, I think what we have learned now is that if you're going to seek that kind of money into the property, you better have some alternative forms of income, which oftentimes, unfortunately, means housing, and then it's a whole different product. But you know, it was it was built by people who could afford basically to take the loss. I don't think they looked at it that way. Obviously, they were hopeful it would work, but there wasn't a whole lot of risk for them. And and of course, if it still existed. Wow, I mean, the pressure on that real estate, municipal courses in New York don't seem to get pressured much because they're at capacity all the time and seem to have a, a decent amount of support. But private clubs in the city 
there's really only one now, and it's in Staten Island. All the other ones were bought out because the value of the land was so high that after the war they just all, <clears throat> you know, picked up stakes, took a, a major windfall in the value of the land, and then built a course out in suburbia. It, it wasn't actually in New York City. It was just over the line, but that land would have become so valuable that it would have been interesting to see in the 50s or the 60s if they had just taken the money and ran like everybody else did. Yeah. This, of course, all ties into, Clates, whilst they're internal golf discussions, as I said, but in particular, the distance debate. I know Daniel touches on it in the book, the size of the golf course that you require when the ball goes further and further, particularly at the non-elite level where it goes less and less straight. Do we give that enough attention? You had the big debate with Chambly, or a little bit of a debate with Chambly, uh, over the weekend on Twitter. On Twitter, does golf give that enough uh, credence, the the importance. It feels like we might be at a very important point in golf's history right around this time. Not this very moment, but this couple of decades that we're in at the moment. Could be we might look back in fifty years and say they were really important. Well what we do, I mean Daniel says in the book that the USGA will at some point roll the golf ball back, which is the biggest question. I mean, I, I think the, the majority probably wouldn't agree with that, but surely it's inevitable that in terms of, you know, we're having the Moore Park discussion and the Lido being only 6,600 yards, which was a long course for its time, you know, at what point does golf run out of space? And, 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 and what point does it stop defending how much space it takes? And at a, at a time when, you know, Bryson DeChambeau's sticking up on track, man, he's 400-yard carry. I mean, clearly that's not sustainable. But, you know, the, the last line in the book is, why is the game better off? Why is the game going to be better Actually, off? For read the players, line, Clades, because it is a great line. He, he puts it beautifully. Have you got it in front of you there? The, the damage that modern equipment has done to the game is manifest, but what has it gained us? I mean, what is the game going to gain by Bryson showing people how to hit the ball 400 yards? Because the historical inevitability is that once he figures it out, there'll be a whole bunch of 10-year-olds who, 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 who will have figured out who will have figured it out in, in the next decade. So, you know, the game's clearly unsustainable at 400 yards. Yeah. Well, we say that. Jeff, I suppose the Chambly argument is this is human uh, endeavour and, and overcoming, uh, you know, figuring new things out. This is what humans do, and it's a fantastic thing. And good on Bryson. There are limits in place. Those limits haven't changed, and he's pushing up against the boundaries and unlocking new Sort of areas. Well, is there anything wrong with that argument? It does have some legitimacy, does it not? I think the argument would have uh, more would carry more weight if, uh, no pun intended, if the um, <laughs> motivation was to um, if it, if it was if that was really truly the case. I I would probably find it more captivating. The problem is most of the people making the case either have a financial interest. Uh, would like to have some sort of financial interest that relates to earning income from the manufacturers who they just assume want this. Um, and then this this recent phenomenon, which we've started to talk about, the athlete narrative and the need to push it because, I mean, I just looked at the ratings for right before we did the show for the, the Zozo Championship and the, the, the young demographic is uh, not watching golf. And there's, so there's this constant push for athleticism, if we make it that then we make them gritty athletes and tough and all that crap, that that's going to bring the kids in and and long ball is what women want to see and kids want to see and young people want to see. So there's now that component. 
Um, and then it's all just kind of ridiculous when you know that we have certain equipment rules in place. It's not like this is being done. All this is doing is outsmarting the rules uh, in Bryson's case. And obviously he's gaining weight and doing all that other stuff. And he's very talented. And it's amazing what he's doing and how straight he hits the ball given how hard he's swinging it. But that athleticism goes right down the drain with a, with, with some tweaks to the rules. Um, and so it, it then it becomes about protecting either a, a, a financial interest or this this marketing narrative that uh, is believed to be vital to for commercial reasons it has nothing to do with courses and and the game and and you know not to beat the the point in but here we have had this uh, surge in the sport and it has nothing to do with distance <laughs> no, that's, so, that's uh, very true it's all about time yeah Daniel it seems that at the very nub of this entire issue there is there's kind of not to make it binary but unfortunately <laughs> we kind of do that in this day and age there are those who think golf is about golfers and there are those who think golf is about golf courses I'm guessing you're in the second camp uh, I'm guessing I'm right about that what's the problem with thinking the way those in the first camp do that it's about the player. Well, I'm not sure I've ever thought that through as to which camp I would be in. So I'm not sure what my answer to that would be. But if I can just jump back for one second to something Jeff said, because I think it's a really, really important point. These, the tour and the people that make their livings off the tour, seeking that demographic is really not going to help them very much. Because if you look at the advertisers, and the reason that golf is on television in this country on the weekend forever it's not because they draw the biggest raw rating. They can't compete with most other sports in terms of pure numbers, but it's the most targeted demographic. And so your high-end sponsors, your Rolexes and financial services companies and Cadillac and all these, they adore that audience. And I, my dad was in advertising, and he taught me that very young. It's not the number of eyes, it's the right eyes. Mm-hmm. And so that's why golf is there. When Tiger disappeared for a while and everyone panicked, ratings are down. Yeah, ratings are down, but you didn't see sponsors leave. Because the rating, the people that left were the 18 to 34, generally speaking, that Tiger had brought in, and that's not who those sponsors are targeting. Extra eyes are nice, it's a great bonus, but it's not what they're seeking. And so the game does fine in, in terms of the people making their livings off it with what we have because the sponsors, the people that put the money up, that's not the audience they're looking for. And it amazes me how that just sort of gets overlooked these days. Well, one, one thing, Daniel, that's becoming very strange to me, there's some big sponsors that you would lump into that group who are also now youth obsessed. And there is a mindset that either, either we're trying to create an aspirational brand that they'll someday, uh, shop with us on, or they'll influence their, their, their parent or their dad, uh, by being exuberant about the brand. It's, it's a new dimension that's added to this. That's also got these people, kind of in that youth obsession thing, which again, but to your point, it doesn't really translate to uh, discernible dollars and cents as far as I can tell, but they may have metrics that say otherwise. They may, but I I doubt it's in a meaningful way. But nonetheless, I mean, it's a valid point because any eyes are good eyes. But to me, it was very telling that when everyone panicked about ratings nosediving when Tiger vanished, you didn't see any of those sponsors disappear. You didn't even hear rumblings of those sponsors disappearing. Because at the end of the day, they know who their core audience is. Anything else is a bonus, sure, absolutely. And they'd much prefer to have, you know, two million eyes and one million eyes. But if the one million or the one million that they know buy their product, they're not going anywhere. And so I think it's really dangerous to alter the balance of everything in the game 
and of course the tour, you know, is only the tour, but they are the face of the game, like it or not. It, it becomes kind of specious to say, well, we're, we're going to do this for ourselves. We think it's going to grow everything, because it's not. And the advertisers, the people that are bankrolling this, it's really not that important to them. No, and what's disturbing now is that the USGA is kind of in that mindset, too, about their sponsors and their corporate partners and their need, which Hannigan talked about. But if he saw what was going on now, their need to be loved. You know, it's one thing, like you say, it's a PGA Tour. They're, they're a business. They have a lot of events. But the idea now that we have the USGA in that mindset of, of wanting to, to be younger, cooler, and advertiser or corporate partner friendly uh, really makes is going to make it hard for them to ever do anything substantial on this front. The distance yeah, I would agree with that, and it is a little baffling. I, you're absolutely right about that. Daniel, why don't we, as golf, which is a big amorphous mass which doesn't exist, obviously, why don't we celebrate the things about golf that make it different? The PGA Tour seems to be on a trajectory to try to make golf like all other sports. It's got to be athletic and young and this. and Really, golf is, traditionally hasn't been those things. It's been the opposite of all those things, which I think has been part of the key to its success. But we don't seem to celebrate that or market that. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, I go back. My first interest in the game was watching on television, seeing golf. Now, it helped that I was in a cold-weather climate, and I'm looking at, you know, Palm Springs and, and beautiful warm-weather places. But seeing golf courses and going, well, that's pretty cool. Every one of these is different. And it didn't take me long to figure out that you would play different holes different ways. And to me, that was always the greatest thing about the game is that every course is different and you want to see them all. That was where I always started, and I've really never gotten beyond that. I mean, fresh air is great. Camaraderie is great. All those things are wonderful. They are. But to me, the, the singular thing about golf is that you never play the same shot twice. And if you're fortunate enough to get around, you, you can play you know, you'll die before you ever come anywhere near exhausting the course possibilities. And that, to me, that's always been what I would market. Everything else is ancillary. It may be nice. It may be good. Physical fitness is great. But that's not what makes golf unique. You can go play tennis, get, the, get a, a faster, better workout. But golf is totally unique in that regard. And that's always been where I would market it from. So you are in the second camp and you just didn't realize it. Golf's about golf courses. Yeah, exactly. This is the point, exactly. not about... Golfers, we, we really don't make enough of that, do we, Clates? Uh, golf, I don't think. Uh, well, we certainly don't seem to publicly. We come back to this other discussion that we seem to have constantly about the image of the game. People outside of golf don't think of any of the things Daniel just talked about, and yet all of those that I know who are absolutely committed golfers, they're the things that make them lifelong uh, addicts of the game. Yeah, you read the comments, the readers' comments in the newspaper under the articles about Northcote, which is a public course in Melbourne, Jeff and Daniel, and Moore Park, how much people hate golf. Mm. I mean, they hate it. Yeah. Which, I mean, I never understood it until I started reading them and go, how much this visceral hatred they have of the game, how much space it takes, you know, the perception that it's just privileged white people who play it, which is so ridiculous when you're talking about Northcote Golf Course and yeah. Moore Park Golf Course, <laughs> which nice. are, you know, two kind of yeah. you know, very cheap, you know, you, Played very cheap public golf courses for, for every everybody can play them. Yeah, you know it's not like it's Royal Melbourne and Royal Sydney. I mean, I you know I get why people can see that's a you know they're bastions of white privilege that they don't necessarily like. But 
I mean, Northcote and Moore Park, I mean, wow. Yeah, indeed. And, of course, I've always felt that we should flip this argument on people like Clover Moore and ask her why she doesn't feel a responsibility, given that the city has this asset, to actually make more use of it, to try to drive the game and encourage more people to the game. They do it for other sports. Why is golf seen as less important than football or netball or tennis or hockey in terms of uh, public resourcing? Uh, and seen as a very easy target when you want to grab some land. And I don't know that we make enough of, of that as well because golf has so much to offer, Jeff, that, as we've just discussed, that, that we just don't sell. There's so much more than Adam Scott jetting in on his private plane or, Je- or Greg Norman having his own private plane and a $20 million yacht. They're the things that people associate with golf, and it's such a small part of the game, isn't it? And it's never going to be something that golf can overcome. It just has to... Uh, be aware of it, I think. And, and that's all you can do. And, and again, if you had a more organized effort to sort of stick up for the sport, if you will, when, when it's, uh, attacked and there was an organization that, that did that and, and the RNA, you know, like forget not to, I don't want to pick on the USGA entirely because how many cases have we seen of golf courses in, in the UK, Absolutely. Uh, that are very important mm-hmm. places, um, that the RNA, where, where's, where's the RNA, yeah. uh, where's their, their help in trying to protect these, uh, let's just go with the historic angle, forget the, the, uh, importance to just, ha- to having golf in an area. Um, they, they haven't been interested either. So it's not just a, a U.S. thing; it's 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 an RNA thing, and a, it, and they would just be so much more appreciated as organizations if they, they. Uh, and I get it; you could get you you could get a phone call a day asking you to stick up for a place that's under fire or or in trouble, but they're not even doing it for the ones that are of of great historic significance sometimes, and that's uh, very disappointing. Yeah, well, golf golf administrators need to be on the front foot. Don't they? I mean, here in Australia, we've talked about this before too. God, just go back through the old episodes if you want to know what we're talking about. Why isn't there an employee of Golf Australia whose sole job is to travel around the country going to local councils and asking them what their golf facility and what their plans are and helping them to understand how it can be, you know, better? good, why it needs to be protected. They need to be on the front foot about this stuff, don't they? All too often what we see is a reaction. I see, you know, James Sutherland says he's disappointed by this notion of closing more park. Well, disappointment's not going to help to save it, is it? Why weren't they there last year or the year before or the year before that when Clovermore was saying the same things? Where was Golf Australia then? Um, You know, not to personalise it, but it's their job, isn't it? I guess he's been diplomatic, but where's the outrage word? Where is we're outraged about this? This is a disgraceful decision by Clover Mortar. Want to close this golf course? There are sixty thousand rounds a year. It's one of the busiest golf courses in the world. Yeah. What's she thinking about? Yeah. I mean, to hell with this diplomacy bit. And I mean, we're disappointed, really. Mm. Well, know? well, that's got to be a starting point, doesn't it? I think that says to golfers that Golf Australia has their back if there's a bit of that outrage sort of stuff. But it can only be the starting point, can't it, Jeff? Politically, the next steps are you get around a table and you start actually you know, breaking down the nitty-gritty of what this might look like. The reality is Moore Park is unlikely to survive as an 18-hole golf course in the long run. So golf needs to figure out what, or Golf Australia, whoever it's going to be, somebody needs to represent golf to make sure that you get the best possible outcome 
uh, imaginable. And that's where golf seems to get it wrong. That's where the USGA, the R&R, right. Golf Australia, that's where they're getting it wrong. They're not in there saying, look, here's some of the alternatives. Here's ways that the, we all know what they are, don't we? But, but nobody's selling that to the non-golfers. No, and there isn't even a template still. Um, I mean, there, there are a few pro- projects you could, I think, find, but a template for, okay, yeah, 18 holes uh, is too much at this point for this property, but we could still have nine holes uh, a, uh, and convert a few areas into a, a, a range or, or, or a Himalayas or, or, or diversify the facility to save it. Um, I think the only one we have in the United States I can really think of, and I haven't seen it, but everybody's raving about it is, and it was disappointing, but it was, it saved the Bobby Jones course in, in Atlanta, uh, which, which was uh, run down, but, but very well liked, but it, it did, did salvage it as a nine hole with other, um, it just has other elements now that, that, that kind of have refreshed it and, and made it. A more valuable place instead of losing it altogether, and uh, it would be sensational if if we had a a nonprofit advocacy group. So, but that's that that ship sailed. The RNA and the USGA, nobody's going to look to them to do that. We now have, thankfully, people stepping up like the National Links Trust here. Uh, it looks like I I've seen some good news while we were talking. I haven't looked into it yet, but about Cleve Hill in in uh, England, that looks like a group. Some people have gotten together to uh, to save that again. They're just total crickets from the RNA on on a on a place with with old Tom Morris and Mackenzie roots and um, a totally unique golf course that Clates uh, can talk about. But um, so that's the good news that other people are stepping up. But then these organizations wonder why people don't like them, yeah. and they have spent a lot of money on an ad campaign to make themselves look cool or uh, fund. Uh, you know the the uh, uh, bar stool to uh, pretend to to care about them. It's because they don't actually step up in the at the times when when the game needs them. That's the real stuff. Yeah, right. well, Cleve Hill took I mean, a bunch of us signed that petition, I guess, but it took Nick Faldo to weigh in before anyone. Right, noticed. but good for him. I mean, yeah, great. yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, where are the RNA? I mean, yeah, why does it have to come down to Nick Faldo to weigh in before right. someone starts paying attention? Well, that was spent. And, and, and you know, Chris Kane, who's a listener, I know is a fan of keeping eighteen holes. The, the alternative at Moore Park is to, well, okay, you can have nine, but invest in the other nine and build some, you know, holes with two greens and Himalayas right. putting green, and reinvest some money in what's left because it's a great piece of land. I mean, I've never played the golf course. I'm not sure. What, you know, I assume it's not great, but it looks decent. But decent. okay, if you're going to take nine holes, but if you're going to do that. Then invest in what's left and ho- next. Sorry, invest in what's left and hire a great architect right. yeah, and well, make something that's fantastic that, that people can really love and enjoy. And, and there are so many variations on nine holes. I mean, you know, look at Royal Wellington and Newmarket and the, the double greens at Pine Valley and Bandon and the Himalayas putting green at St Andrews. Is, clearly, there's enough land to do that stuff, and you know make something fantastic out of it. But don't just take nine holes and then invest nothing in what's left. Yeah, you could actually give Sydney something to boast about internationally, uh, something innovative and groundbreaking and important and whatnot. But you'd need some golf understanding to do that. Daniel, you're probably sitting there listening to us 
it all sounds quite bleak. You're ultimately very positive about the future of the game. You say in the book that regardless of what sort of happens, that you believe that golf will always survive. I suspect we all do, but you can sort of see a lot of pressure on the game from a lot of sources, can't you? Absolutely, and, I, and I, I do believe certainly the game's going to be around. There's enough, maybe for the wrong reason, but there's enough money behind it that it's not going to go away. But, but I, I think everything that's just been said here, I agree with completely. It's, there's always going to be major pressure on something that uses a lot of land in metropolitan areas. And I, Jeff may have a different perspective on this, I, because I tend to live in the past with what I write and what I research. And growing up in New York where there was no heat on the public courses, but I, I, I wasn't really of a sense that we were in danger in cities like L.A. of losing any, but maybe it's only a matter of time. And if, if that's the case, I don't know that the USGA or anybody else can stop that because the value of the land is just so high. I mean, there's a reason all those private clubs that were in cities in America sold out after the war and went to the suburbs because it was just too valuable. And what you guys said at the very beginning, I heard somebody, I think it was Jeff, said something about using, closing them one day a week, making them a park, or two days a week. Yeah, something where it shows some broader usage to the community, I mean, that's probably a great idea because otherwise, in cities, ultimately that land is probably just going to be too valuable. Yeah. I think that's the key to it, and this is what I keep coming back to. I think that's what golf as an entity needs to bring to the table. And that's the thing that golfers aren't good at, is that notion of sharing. No. You, you only no, need they, to they s- want to be closed off. That's yeah. right. You, you only need to see the responses, as sort of Clay said, whilst there's some scary stuff from people who are anti-golf and who hate the game. Golfers' responses to some of this stuff is quite frightening. Every time I write a piece saying golf needs to learn how to share, I get oh, yeah, people get- telling me it's 100% wrong. You know, Who's going to pay for it? Are these people who are sharing the course, are they paying for the upkeep and, and all all this sort of stuff? And I, I'm not sure how you educate golfers. And we've often talked, Jeff, about how- No, you, you can't. Well, yeah, I wonder, but we kind of have to, don't we? We've often well, talked about what we do doesn't have any impact on the outside world. Non-golfers aren't listening to us. So we in the golf media do lots of talking about golf and issues, and it doesn't get to anybody who needs to hear it. It is golfers who need to hear this stuff. So we do have some responsibility here, don't we, as the media? Yeah. And maybe it's it's something that's more subtle. I was just, as we were discussing this, I was thinking of, uh, of a course here in Southern California called Brookside. It's 36 holes of just, just prime, incredible real estate uh, in this, uh, the Arroyo Seco uh, next to the Rose Bowl football stadium. Uh, and it's used as a car park uh, for, for football games. But, the, but it also has a great clubhouse with a wonderful food and beverage operation, and it has for a long time. And walkers walk around the course and the restaurant and is valued uh, as part of the community and, and the bathrooms are there and people on the walk or, or runners or bikers can stop in and it, it it's it is a cl- has a fence around it but it is uh, a place that serves the community in other little ways besides the golf and so that makes it even though it's 36 holes in this incredible location I mean there's nothing else you could do with it because it's a it's a it's a it's a wash, um, um, and there is a flood control now. But it does make itself more valuable to the community by not being closed off, and 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 provides other functions in other ways. And maybe it's not just maybe it's not Rod closing the course, but it's it's places thinking about ways that with food and beverage or other ways that they make themselves valuable to um, to the community, or at least just not giving that sense that we're 
this is all of what that goes on here is stay, stay away it's uh this is if yeah, you don't play away. golf yeah. this is that, that vibe is you. just not going to work uh, i was telling Clates, especially because they're public facilities yeah. and municipally owned i was telling clates this the other day but my mum and her friends I mean, she's in her 80s now but for many years they used to go once a week i think it was or once a fortnight up to the golf club at the the local golf club near our place because you could sit in the restaurant there and have lunch and look over the golf course and they loved it. They thought it was great sport watching blokes throw clubs and miss putts and, and yeah. top balls. It, it was that was the entertainment. You didn't need anything else going on. Watching people play golf uh, was the entertainment. Of course, culturally, Clates, you go to Scotland. Even people who don't play golf don't have this anti-golf sentiment for the most part because they never feel they've been actively excluded from the game. And that's perhaps the mistake we've made here in Australia and some other parts of the world, isn't it? We actively exclude people from the game, which is what Shaq is getting at there, I think. Well, they've got the, the what they call it, the right to roam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can walk your dogs. Yeah. So anyone course. can walk on a so, – so their town golf courses, the old course starts in the town and goes out to the far point and – comes back to the town and Carnoustie and Dornock and Brewer and Montrose, all those clubs do the same thing. So, so the North Berwick, so they're, they're part of the town and, and they're part of people's lives, whether you play the game or not. That's right. You're not locked out and, of it, and, are you? And there are no fences, That's apart right. from Muirfield with that big gate at the front. There are no fences. So every golf course in Australia has got the, got the big fence around it and it's you know, private property and don't yeah. come in. And yeah. We haven't integrated it that well with people who live around them and yeah yeah daniel i doubt we can engender that sort of spirit amongst golfers or non-golfers outside of scotland but it would be a wonderful thing to try to emulate wouldn't it that notion that and what you pointed out earlier alluded to earlier private clubs moving out of the city to the suburbs that sort of take flight after the war golf really exists notionally for most people over there doesn't it it's over there the golf course is over there it's not part of here Right, and but I think you know Jeff mentioned something about Brookside. I, I wasn't aware there were walking paths there, but down here I live on the, the southern side of the city, and down in Palos Verdes, where our esteemed president um, apparently owns the golf course. I'm not sure how he afforded it, but I think somebody overseas actually owns the golf course. But in Palos Verdes, they when that course was built by the original developer, there were all kinds of mandates. They had to have some park space. They had to have a running path that surrounded it, other than the ocean side and that kind of thing. And I think just having a, a walking or running path around the perimeter of any of these public courses that, hey, anybody's welcome to come walk your dog, walk around here. Like you say, watch people throw clubs and get a kick out of that. <laughs> that in itself would probably do a lot to engender yeah. the game to the local community. Yeah. Andy Staples is a, an architect in the sense. I'm not sure whether you're, familiar, whether you're familiar with him, but he's got this fantastic sort of concept. It's called Community Links, and he's done a couple of these sort of projects where – innovative and creative ways to share the space beyond just golf, and it's been the saviour of a couple of causes. More of that kind of thing. Um, perhaps that's the way to help educate golfers, Shaq, take some places that have been successful and show golfers that you can use the golf space for more than just golf, and there's a lot of good comes from it. Well, and it would be great, uh, well, it would on a number of levels, and it would also be wonderful if, if – Golf courses were more creative in, in the way they operate. Mm. Uh, we've talked about it before. Bring your dog day and uh, just uh, you know cross country golf or, or uh, nine holes or uh, better rates Barefoot in the golf. evening for a little six per per hole you play. I mean, it, there just isn't a lot of imagination. Is ultimately the point we're we're going to get to. I think on this and be um, 
fairly fairly redundant um, when compared with past conversations about this issue. But that said, that said, at least here, it sounds like more than than where you are. We're 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 seeing more of these things finally starting to happen. You know, I mean, I'll give you another example here in LA. They finally have farmed out the food and beverage to. Uh, some interesting, innovative people in the restaurant business in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, it just happened right at the beginning of the pandemic. But again, these golf courses have spaces around the clubhouse for outdoor dining, and and hopefully these people can adapt. But there's some really interesting uh, purveyors of of food that 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 foodies love and generate interest that are going to take these spaces. I presume at a good price and try to make them better so the golfers will get great food but then they'll also do that little extra thing where it's a a community asset uh beyond just the golf yeah. so we we're don't. we're getting there yeah um, it's just going to be interesting to see if it, it continues yeah it's kind of so forced. daniel in the again the last chapter talks about what we've been talking about in the early days in scotland golf was never exclusively a rich man's game in modern America, at least as regards equipment, it seems we're doing all we can to make sure it will be little else. And that, that's in reference to $500 for a rocket-powered driver, $700 for a putter, $1,400 for a set of multi-piece graphite-shafted irons, which is which ties the two things together, the cost of equipment yeah. is. When I've been buying um, clubs on eBay in the pandemic, you can buy amazing sets of irons for $150. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't They're it? Beautiful old sets of Spalding irons that I've been playing with them. They're great for $150 bucks for 10 clubs. Yep. Yeah, and here we are, $700 for a putter. <laughs> yeah, but have you guys noticed uh, some of the things I've uh, posted from the Golf Data Tech of what people are buying right now? No, what are they buying? It's, it's mostly bags, soft goods, balls, gloves, uh, Drivers are not not one of the big things. Now, granted, it's not the driver new driver season, but uh, all these numbers that are spiking in the equipment sales are all uh, things you need to play the game <laughs> yeah. that are more essential. And uh, those expensive clubs are are being resisted. And and maybe also there's got to be just a ton of inventory, maybe less so. In fact, I think I'll stop by the local local place that sells a ton of used clubs and see, but I would imagine a lot of people uh, who got back into the game or got started were told, yeah, just go to the used bin. Those, the, the driver from a year and a half ago is just fine. <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of interesting too, that, that in this spike, that's the, the really expensive stuff has become a little less value. I think Daniel team. touches on this in the book too. None of that, that's all, all that turbocharged drivers and spinny wedges and ball that does this and that. all of that stuff for once you're hooked isn't it daniel none of that has any impact on somebody taking up the game they don't give it a thought daniel anybody i'm here you're there i'm here i think we lost him i think we lost daniel stand by i'm gonna get him i'll get him back hang on a sec uh, there we go oh now hang on i wonder whether I have, I might have run out of Skype credit. Surely not. So should I go read this uh, Shambly spat? I I don't know how ah. I missed. I, guess I know I saw volumes about my landline technology. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> it's supposed to be the most reliable, Daniel. And it's just uh, the problem may have been at mine. Where did you lose us? 
Ah, uh, that's a good question. About three minutes ago. Okay. We were just talking about uh, golf. Jeff was just talking about uh, the golf data tech figures suggested it's not the new equipment that's moving, it's the bags and the balls and gloves and accessories and clothing and that sort of thing. I think you make the point in the book, don't you, that all of that stuff about a driver that does this or a wedge that does that, that's for people who are already hooked on the game. None of it actually helps or, or is of any concern to people getting into the game, is it? We focus on... It Absolutely. Seems Absolutely. Go- yeah, the golf business keeps and fighting over back, a small pie. And you also have the fact that, I mean, <clears throat> distance gains, anything you gain, it's all relative. The guy you're playing with gets the same gain. So it's really just about ego. And I remember back in the early days of this stuff on Golf Club Atlas, and basically the argument I was getting back from people was, well, I like hitting it further. <laughs> that's all you got? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. That's, you know. Yeah, that's. Uh... Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? But people forget that relative thing too. It just seems to get completely lost in the discussion. Is that you know, if we roll the ball back, the longest would still be the longest. <laughs> just, you Absolutely, know. you just could do it on a smaller facility, and the game would last a lot longer and a lot stronger. Yeah, indeed. Uh, from a business perspective, I know we've discussed this before, Jeff, but the manufacturers don't do anything to try to grow the game, do they? All they really do, the major players in that space, is fight over what has been right. a shrinking market for the last couple of decades rather than looking to, you know, the rising tide lifts all boats kind of idea. When will the business sense of that maybe strike, do you think, or will it never hit us? I don't think it ever will. In fact, I think it'll get worse just, just seeing the climate in our country that, that, that something that is a private for-profit business is, is essentially a religion to a lot of people, that it's sacred. And, and especially a lot of the people who are on the, the USGA executive committee are come into the corporate board mindset. Um, even when you present the numbers to people, that that really is a stagnant business in a sense. It's been, I mean, it's let's say generously, it's an $8 billion business now, the manufacturing of uh, clubs and selling of, of various things. And, and then you compare it to what the rest of the industry is, and, and, and it's a 70 to $80 billion business of travel uh, 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 regular everyday golf courses, country clubs. Um, it's not even close. It's uh-huh. just a much bigger industry. And yet for some reason, the one that's publicly traded is, is, is special. Uh, and even though that one doesn't do anything for charity, doesn't do anything to grow the game, uh, hardly at all. While the courses that are the infrastructure that are doing things to try and grow the sport to keep the sport sustainable that have a tougher task before them to present a maintained course and a maintained facility and keep it up to date as businesses, they, they, they're much in a much tougher spot. And yet for whatever reason, uh, they don't get the empathy that, uh, and for the strain that is caused by things like the ball going too far and then having to put up new fencing and, deal with liability and all that, all, all that stuff. They don't get the sympathy that the manufacturers do. If God forbid, we tweak the rules that, uh, that they now play by under the current rules of golf. And by the way, they are always entitled any day of the week, yep. 365 days a year to make whatever they want. Is they that... don't have to make conforming no, equipment. They don't. Right. So Absolutely. they bitch and moan about it and they, 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 they whine and make you feel so sorry for them. And really, it's it's just absurd. 
um, it's 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 reached a ridiculous point. And but I don't know I don't know what will change that. You you make that point in the book, Daniel, that both Frank Hannigan and Sandy Tatum, Sandy Tatum was a well respected attorney, both said that there was no real recourse for manufacturers against an organisation like the USGA because the rules are only be, being followed voluntarily. I wonder though whether we are approaching the time. I think this is probably to me this is the bigger fear of the USGA and the RNA about acting is that rather than there being some um, sort of response from manufacturers we're going to sue, that they will simply band together with the tours of the world and say, well, we're just not going to play by those rules anymore. We'll make our own now. And would that be good for the game, Daniel? Well, the way you're phrasing it wouldn't be, but, I, you know, Tim Fincham once upon a time voiced some concern about what this was doing to his product. I mean, at some point, granted... This particular regime right now doesn't seem to be in tune with that. But yeah, the opposite at of some that, point, yeah. somebody may realize that the game is a lot more interesting for people to watch when there's actually decisions to be made and variety of play, and it's not just a wedge and putting contest. That mindset, then it, then it becomes maybe a positive thing. But at, at the end of the day, the, the, the tour is going to do what the tour wants to do for itself, and that's understandable. I mean, they didn't ask to be the face of the game. They just happened to be. Mm. Yeah, I, I, my thought has been for a long time that that's the, the the real issue for the USGA and the RNA is that if they may if they if they do something about the ball that people don't like, people will, will just start to ignore them because we're only governed by choice, aren't we, Clates? I think it was Tom Watson who said that famously. It might have been Sandy Tatum. We're only governed by the USGA and the RNA because we allow them to. There's no, you don't have to play by their rules, as Jeff just said. And if that becomes the normal for people that they don't play by the RNA and the USGA rules. I think that's what they probably fear more than anything else. Yeah. Total irrelevance. Well, the key, you know, I mean, going back to the paper they put out at the start of the year, it seems like we'll just make players play with the, the different equipment at the US Open and the British Open and just let it go from there. Yeah. You're relying on the lure of those two tournaments and you might be right. That might Around be, the Masters too. The Masters. The that might be powerful enough to do it, but it might not be ultimately. <laughs> I can see a whole generation of young pros who might just say if they're asked to by their sponsors, eh, it's just the US Open. It's not that important. This tournament I'm playing over here is more important, so I'll play that rather than the restricted ball event. I think that's a real danger. Uh, I, hope that it, I hope the game never gets to that because you'd hate to see how that would play out, but I think that's a real, uh, a real possibility and a real danger. And on that happy note, ah, quickly before we go, Daniel, I mentioned that you wrote this fantastic piece about Augusta National, all the changes way back in 2011. You, of course, you're going to have to update it. Uh, some thoughts about the Masters in November. You're intimately familiar with the course, obviously, and no doubt with the tournament itself. Uh, any thoughts about what we're going to see in the next couple of weeks when the Masters is played in November? It's a bizarre set of circumstances, isn't it? It's a bizarre situation. Um, the only real thought that I have is that it's a heck of a lot better to play it in November than to not play it. Yeah. Um, beyond that, we're in uncharted territory. I, some people disagree with that, but I feel pretty strongly. And, you know, we're, we're going to see how this plays out. I mean, obviously the golf course will be different agronomically. I have no idea... You know, to what extent? Um, no galleries, of course, probably make a bigger difference there than almost anywhere else. So we'll see how that plays out. It's it's a huge unknown. I think it'll be a fascinating experiment, and I think we all hope deeply that it's a one-time experiment. Yeah, Jeff, are you getting the same vibe from this year's Masters? Is there as much excitement about the Masters in November as we normally see? Or is it a different kind of excitement? It feels sort of weird to me. It's a different lead-up, isn't it? No, not at all. Nothing like like what we have in the. Um the springtime, at least here, hmm. uh, there's certainly within golf, there's some excitement, but it's not going to, 
it's going to be the lowest rated Masters by far. Uh, Unless Tiger wins it or he's winning it. It, it comes Sunday. And I mean, not the television ratings are a barometer, but it will. They enjoy being the highest rated golf telecast every year. And it, it won't be because it's going up against football and it's in early in the day. We have to finish for the football game, which I find revolting. Two T um, start Thursday, Friday. Yeah, two T starts. Uh, it could be very cold in the morning. And um, Jack and Gary are going to be—they're going to be bundled up. <laughs> I, I have a feeling when they're teeing off at um, at, at seven fifteen or, or whatever the number is. I think seven forty is what they're looking at, maybe for the first tee time. Uh, they're going to be doing a lot of preparation in the dark anyway. But I no, it'll still be great. It'll still be interesting and fun to see the place at a different time of year. As Daniel said, it's better than nothing. But uh, definitely a lot of things around it. I just are, I think are making it making people a little less interested. So there are a few distractions right now. Real golf fans, golf tournament. Perhaps you've really got to be into your golf to be interested. What is college? What's this college football pick? What's that about, Jeff? That's oh, outside of America. Yeah, that we was the most bizarre thing today. What? Yeah, they they issue a press release. Down at the bottom, they mentioned the part three contest is canceled. That we're going we're going to be doing split tees. They even mentioned a couple of, of really interesting technology thing we're yeah, going to yeah. be able to essentially it sounds like pick certain players and follow and, them and get a shot. tailored feed yeah uh really interesting innovative thing but for whatever reason and then some of the articles all let off with the uh college game day which is a very popular and i watch it every saturday i have it on it's a it's a pregame show and and they travel the country and it's very well done um, very well done. Great features, and and they always go somewhere, and they have a big crowd. Obviously, this year no crowds, and there's people make great signs. And uh, this was big news to Augusta National that this is going to be on. They're going to be over on the par three course. <laughs> um, so it's a TV show. I think it, I don't. I, I it's bizarre that they uh, they made that the uh, sort of the the front for their their press release today. But yeah. that's that was their their. Their choice. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure, you like me, Clates was just flummoxed by what is this? Oh, you wouldn't have a clue. What it was. It was right. bizarre. No, you shouldn't. It's I'd just, be worried if you did. It's just. So it's a TV show, essentially. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's on for about three hours, I think. Right. Every, it's right. every Saturday during college yeah. football, and it it sets you up for the day's games. And like I said, it's wonderfully done. They they uh -huh. have a great cast and crew, and do these amazing features. But uh, trying to do that at Augusta and. I, I don't know. It's just another one of these kind of weird. I mean, just to boil it down, they they canceled the part three contest broadcast, and the, so therefore this is probably a little bit of a make good to ESPN uh, to give them something special, and it, it will be different for their show. It's but not offensive. It's just different and hard to understand when you're not in America. Although I will say we wouldn't be immune right. to this in Australia, would we, Clates? The AFL dominates everything, particularly in in the southern states and in. Western Australia, not so much Queensland. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You, you could absolutely see this happening with the AFL, could you? A draft or a, what's their big, is it the Brownlow? The big uh, the big uh, night or night? You the, could, <laughs> the world's most boring four hours of TV. Yeah, you, you could see golf wanting to align itself with that to uh, to grab something. So we're not immune to it here, Shaq. I just, I didn't know what it was. It was, it was uh, yeah, no, you shouldn't. And and it's so it's one of those. And there's probably a little bit of golf desperation syndrome in there where we're, you know, we think this will get us to a new audience kind of. Uh, they threw a little, Fred Ridley's quote had a little something like that. And that's. It's, you know, every uh, golf is going to be asked, don't you? It's, it's, it's hogwash. Oh, gosh. I mean, I just I just looked around some of the websites after that news went out and they, it's that, they, they bought that, they, that as the headline. And 
I, I get it, but it's not the headline of the press release uh, by any measure. I'm with um, you. The most interesting thing was by far that follow, pick a player and follow every shot that they hit. That's the yeah, sort of innovation golf more. really needs uh, and has needed for a long time and that we just don't get. Here we finally get it dished up and it's uh, overtaken by football talk. Well, there you go. Daniel Wexler, where can we get your book? On Amazon right now. That's the only place I know of. It might get distributed somewhere down the road, but right now, Amazon. Okay, well, I'm going to find a link to it on Amazon. I'm going to put it in the show notes and recommend that everybody should go and buy it. I haven't done that yet, but, Clates, you're endorsing the book, I take it? The book's fantastic. Absolutely worth buying and reading. Is it the sort that you can read again and again? I love the essay books, Clates, that you can go back to. I go back to Peter Thompson's book every couple of months. Just pick it up and open a page and start reading from some of his old columns. Is it one of those sorts of books? Yeah, it's just 10 essays, so you don't have to start at the start. You can start wherever you want and you can – Read about why Daniel thinks the Korean women have become so good. And George Thomas's work in LA, which is relevant to where you guys are, obviously, the Bel Air and Riviera and LA Country Club, which were three obviously incredibly important courses. So there's a wide variety of stuff that's in there that's terrific. Fantastic. If you like golf or anything about golf, it sounds like that's the book. Daniel, congratulations. I know you've written plenty of other books, but. I do a column every week. I can't imagine writing a book. That's an extraordinary mountain to climb, and I take my hat off to you, as do others. It's been fantastic of you to come and spend some time with us today. And I, If you ever get Skype, we might get you back on. We can't do the landline thing twice. <laughs> that's, that's a fair deal. I hear you. <laughs> all, you need's a, all you need is a smartphone, mate, and we can get you the rest of the way through. Thanks for the chat today. really enjoyed it. You'll, you'll carry me home. I appreciate that. Yeah. Jeff Shackleford, always great to have you along, my friend. Been uh, good to get your thoughts and input today. Look forward to chatting to you again in the not-too-distant future. Absolutely, we uh, should have a lively few weeks here in the game. Well, let, yeah, well, let's let's uh, yeah. let's hope so. Clates, good to have you on board, and good on you for uh, for getting the rest of us off our bums to make this one happen. So, uh, thank you for that. Look forward to chatting to you again in the not too distant future. Thank you, Rod. Most enjoyable, and that is episode one hundred and seven of State of the Game, or episode one of the Clayton Nights, if you prefer. Uh, we might uh, we might start a new podcast, Clayton. That'd be good, wouldn't it? A cult movement, the Clayton Nights. Uh, <laughs> we'll be back to do it all again next time. You're the most unenthusiastic cult leader I've ever met. Yeah, <laughs> you're yeah. the only well, one I in the cult. I think we should call it the Shackites or the. How about the Nicholasites? I think we should. I think the Nicholasites is. Yeah, Nicholas Woods, Bobby Jones. That's right. Yeah. Of course, they all had these views after they were washed up and uh, yeah. couldn't play and anymore. Done. Well, yeah. funny you yeah. should right. say that because uh, Chandler. Oh, it's not. Don't don't even try. Nicholas, of course, started of course on this topic 60s. when he was in his prime. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's just it's he's. He's reaching. But uh, Chambly tried to suggest that Bobby Jones only started talking about this stuff after yeah. he retired. And then Robert yeah. Crosby. By the way, Tiger Woods is the reigning Masters champion, yes. and he's brought yeah. this stuff up. So, yeah. sorry. Exactly. He's still, he's still good. Exactly. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, and the, the, yeah. Sorry, Rod, go on about the. I was going to say, Chambly would want to be careful about getting into a tangle with Robert Crosby about Bob Jones because he's yeah, absolute that- authority. Um, yeah. I mean, Chambly's charge was that Jones bought the ball up after he finished playing and. Well, actually, no, he brought it up in 1926. That's right. And then Chandler said, yep. oh, I'd like to see the reference and the context of that. It's like, well, you might not know what you've just asked for there, Brandall, because yeah. Robert will give it to you verbatim. He is fantastic, Rob Crosby. So uh, anyway, it's, uh, that was good to see. Episode 108 next time. Thanks, gents. Look forward to the next one. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.